following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is our Lamort D'Arthur class still now. What We're in session number 18. Yes, session 18 this evening. Um, uh, and because <laughs> I see a couple people are teasing me for starting so early where we, you know, I started less than five minutes late, uh, which seems terribly early. Uh, the occasion, the answer to your questions about why we're starting so early uh, is uh, that uh, people went to bed at a much more reasonable uh, uh, hour in a much more compliant fashion this evening than usual. That's pretty much the cooperativeness of my children is about... Uh, uh, is about uh, pretty much always the answer to that question, the primary determining factor uh, of, of the degree of lateness uh, of these classes. Uh, anyway, so um, how are you guys this evening? Really glad to be, oh, see, again, I'm, 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 I almost did that same thing again where I'm like, glad to be back, but like, of course, like I haven't missed anything, right? We were here last week, uh, but of course it's been an eventful uh, uh, a week since I've been with you guys last. Uh, I've been down to Charlotte for Magnolia Moot, which was absolutely delightful. Uh, what a wonderful gathering. Uh, we had a, a sort of a, a, we had a smaller number at Magnolia Moot, but wow, it was like the all-star team. Uh, so many people I was super excited to meet down there uh, at Magnolia Moot. Really, really wonderful uh, conversations. Uh, really, really great time. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, really great to uh, to see folks, uh, and uh, we we, we talked a little bit about uh, Maori stuff. We talked more about exploring the Lord of the Rings stuff, actually. But um, um, still, anyway, it was um, uh, it was really good. It was a really great weekend. Um, and uh, I just have a, a oh, so Tomas is hoping the New England moot is coming soon. Well. Uh, it depends on uh, whether you call all time soon or not. Uh, it will be coming. Uh, that is, it's, it, more details will be forthcoming soon. The mood itself is still a little bit of a ways away. You may remember that when I mentioned Tomas or when I announced the New England moot, um, that we were uh, uh, kind of debating whether to try to squeeze it into the spring or whether to do it uh, perhaps uh, you know later on in the year next year. And we've decided on the later on uh, in the year. So. Um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna we're gonna hold it in uh, uh, probably in September actually uh, hoping to be right around uh, right around uh, Bilbo and Frodo's birthday next year actually uh, so we'll have a, a nice little uh, autumnal uh, New England moot uh, next September probably date not yet confirmed on that so I can't be uh, can't be very definite but that's the that's the general plan so Tomas it's getting sooner in the sense of being more and more concretely planned. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, so that's going to be, that's going to be really fun. But of course the one that is getting sooner, like I was about to say getting sooner more quickly, but of course they're all getting, they're all getting closer at the same rate. But the one that is soonest of all of them, of course, now is tax moot. Uh, tax moot is the moot that's coming up next. We have a bit of a moot hiatus, right? Um, and uh, uh, that is, it's a little, having gone to moots every two weeks for the last month and a half or so, uh, it seems strange to wait two months for the next moot. But so it is. Our next moot is not until January. 
January 19th, to be precise, will be Texmoot down in Waco, Texas. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Dever, really glad you're going to be there. I'm hoping to get to meet a bunch more people this year uh, at Texmoot. Um, so anyway, the, but the, the, there's actually a very relevant announcement that I wanted to make about that, though, and that is that the uh, the call for papers for uh, Texmoot is uh, uh, closing. I think this weekend, actually. Um, Textmood people are super organized, uh, and uh, anyway, so they they're all over things. So uh, they they actually are closing their call for papers, um, which they released uh, uh, a long time ago. Uh, anyway, uh, that's closing this weekend. So I hope that um, if you are interested in presenting at Textmood, uh, definitely wanted to draw your attention to that. You can go to textmoot.org uh, and uh, find the call for papers there along with the contact information, the submission information there. So I hope you will take a look at that. Um, I'm really interested. Of course, the, the topic this year for Textmoot is right up my alley. We're talking, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, about um, audio culture actually like oral culture and uh, 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 sort of it's it's a great audiophiles topic I'm gonna be uh, uh, on a panel talking about uh, podcasting and just sort of the whole process of kind of transforming really sort of my own kind of publication route uh, as a scholar into a, a completely oral medium essentially and talking about that and the effects of that so anyway it's it's gonna be a lot of fun as a, as a dedicated, uh, uh, and increasingly, as I get older, passionate audiophile, uh, I'm uh, going to be very interested to hear a bunch of things that people have to say uh, about that. Stephen, is there a date for for uh, Nader Moot, the Netherlands Moot, yet? There is, um, which I think I can announce, April 13th is the date that we're looking at. Until, like, we open registration, you know, like, there's, the, there's always the chance for change, but that's what we're looking at right now, and I think that's pretty solid now april 13th um the date for um uh the date for nader moot uh so yeah great question there um and uh, orlando moot uh, which i think we're going to call sunshine moot uh of course as you may remember we were talking about it if you uh, heard me talking about this in the webathon um i was kind of i kind of really like the idea of calling it gator moot which would be kind of fun but uh, I, then I realized we're actually going to be holding it quite near the campus of the University of Florida, which might seem like false advertising. Like you know, if we call it Gator Moot right there near the campus of the University of Florida, which for those of you who don't know, the, you know, the Gators, of course, is their, is their, uh, their, their, I, I almost said motto, their mascot. Um, it would kind of look like false advertising as if it were actually officially put on by the University of Florida, which of course it isn't. So we can't really call it Gator Moot. But anyway, Su Sunshine Moot is the name that the organizers wanted. So I was like, okay, you know what? Like that works. Um, anyway, so so yeah, so we're gonna be uh, uh, we're gonna be there. And that's gonna happen in March. It's looking like the 23rd of March is the likeliest date uh, for Sunshine Moot down there in Orlando. Anyway. Lots of fun things coming up. Don't forget about the call for papers uh, for uh, uh, TexMoot. Again, our next uh, big moot event. Um, also, speaking of big moot events, of course, the big moot events compared with which all other moot events pale is MythMoot, our annual large convention. Uh, the, uh, the full banquet uh, for which our regional moots are, are, are but uh, merely a taste. Um, and uh, MythMoot, the dates you can save there are from June 27th, uh, 
6th, 7th, 7th, June 27th through the 30th, if I have my dates right, uh, I think Thursday through Sunday of that week. So the, the last weekend of June. Uh, so you can kind of be saving the date uh, for Mythmoot, which is more than four times as awesome uh, as uh, the regional moods. So anyway, um, lots of fun stuff. Uh, in the future calendar coming forward, we have uh, we now have definitely nine moots scheduled for the calendar year 2019, uh, which is uh, kind of what we're just sort of reviewing. This, you know, some of us in the Signum staff were just reviewing it earlier uh, uh, today, and just kind of was, I think it was really the first time I saw them listed all out like that, and I was like, "Darn, that's a lot of moots." <laughs> that didn't even count Myth Moot. Um, so actually, with Myth Moot, I think we have ten. But anyhow. Um, uh, it's it's going to be great. So again, Texmoot, January nineteenth, Waco, Texas, and don't forget, um, uh, don't forget the call for papers deadline, which is coming up this weekend. Now another thing that I wanted to uh, tell you about, remind you of, which is coming up very much closer than any of these things, is our next Mythgard movie night. So the uh, the Mythgard movie club is meeting again tomorrow night, actually on Thursday, November 15th uh, at 9.30 p.m. They are want to meet at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. They're gonna be meeting at 9.30 p.m. Eastern time this month. Um, so again, that's gonna be tomorrow, November 15th, Thursday, November 15th at 9.30 p.m. They're gonna be discussing the Night of the Living Dead, uh, which is like the father of all modern uh, zombie movies. Um, uh, which you know, you know, obviously, with the the sort of the 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 phenomenon that you know the anticipation of the zombie apocalypse has been the night of the night of the living dead, of course, didn't uh, um, didn't invent uh, the whole. You know, it's not the first zombie movie, um, but really is kind of the progenitor of uh, uh, of uh, the uh, the the whole you know modern zombie phenomenon. So it'll be really interesting to look at uh, in this um, um, in this context. So I definitely um, wow, Karita, you have three friends who have Night of the Living Dead tattoos. That's kind of amazing, actually. Not one, not two, but three different friends who all have tattoos related to Night of the Living Dead. That's kind of intense. Um, yeah, yeah. People, people apparently are, apparently are into it, Karita. I, I too would draw that conclusion from that. They don't even know each other, so it's not like you have this like one group of friends who are like in a cult of this movie. No, they're they're completely independent. That's kind of amazing, actually. Um, but anyway, there you go. So we know that Karita's friends are going to be joining us for the Mythgard Movie Club tomorrow night. Uh, so uh, I hope you guys will too. The Mythgard Movie Club was uh, is 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 a lot of fun. I've I've joined them uh, for a couple of uh, of their discussions over the course of this past year. Um, they meet once a month, um, and it was really designed to be a kind of uh, a kind of companion uh, to the Mythgard Academy. Of course, we do sort of longer term study of books, very long books in this case, right? But uh, one of the things that I've always wanted is the opportunity to have more discussion of films. A lot of people have kind of wanted to talk about films, but a film has never won an election yet. We've been really primarily a book thing, of course, so far, and that's that's totally fine, right? That's who we are, though we've done some films along the way as uh, uh, as kind of accessories of, um, of some of the books that we've talked about, but we've never really uh, had a chance to really just kind of dig into classic films. So, I mean, the the whole idea of the Mythgard Movie Club kind of emerged from discussions that uh, I was having with, uh, with, with, with Kat and Curtis, who are the hosts of uh, the movie club, 
um, and they were really excited about the idea. So I've been really excited to see it moving forward. So anyway, just wanted to, I don't talk about it that much, but I just wanted to remind you uh, that it's happening uh, and uh, also that it's awesome. So I hope you will be able to, uh, uh, I, I hope that you'll be able to, uh, uh, to, to, to join us tomorrow night, 9.30 p.m. All right, with that, let us return to Sir Thomas Mallory because we uh, uh, still have much left to do. We are indeed doing essentially a catch-up class tonight. Um, my goal is by the end of tonight's session, we will have come up to where we were supposed to be at the end of last week so that we'll be back on track um, to see Sir Tristram go mad next week. Or, sorry, not next week the week after next, because of course there will be no class next week. I assume that's not much of a hardship, at least for you Americans, right? Who will probably be, you know, heading to grandma's house or wherever it is that you're going uh, as next week is Thanksgiving week, of course. Um, but um, anyway, so we're, um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to be down at my in-laws uh, next week. So I'm going to be out of commission and uh, not entirely out of contact. But uh, but I certainly won't be able to broadcast. So next week we're going to have off and then we'll be back. So the next class will be on the 28th. I'll try to remember to remind you of that at the end of class as well. Okay, so returning uh, to our book here, uh, Tarlonio, I noticed at the beginning of class you were pointing out that uh, uh, there was a... Uh, <laughs> Tarlonio asked at the beginning, wasn't there a dude in this book named Arthur? Whatever happened to him, right? Now, don't forget, Tarlonio, I warned you this was going to happen, right? After we had all that Arthur stuff at the beginning, right? Um, I warned you that we were going to lose sight of King Arthur for a long time in the middle of, the, uh, uh, of this book. Um, and indeed, uh, we have come to the place where Arthur takes more than just a back seat, right? He's now sitting way off stage, right? Um, barely ever... He's referred to in the sense of like, you know, these are Knights of King Arthur, right? But um, Arthur himself plays almost no role whatsoever for the majority of the, 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 the center part of this book. By the time we get, we'll, we'll get Arthur again briefly at the beginning of uh, the quest for the Holy Grail. But again, really there, he's still only kind of the host at the sort of launch party uh, of the quest for the Holy Grail. And then he'll go away, or rather everyone else will go away and he'll stay home. Um, then we will get much more Arthur in the last two books as we work towards the actual fall and death of Arthur, after which the book is actually named, right? So um, anyway, that's um, that's definitely where we're, uh, where we're, where we're planning uh, now. Um, <laughs> Matthew Hershenroder says Nick Fury has assembled the Avengers and now they can take center stage. Yeah, kind of like that. Kind of like that. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it's, he may. Yeah, James Stevens exactly. He he is going to make a cameo occasionally, but yeah, it's not going to be anything more than a cameo. Um, and that's okay, right? He has established this. We've established him as the centerpiece of this world, and now it's to watch the world around him. And really, you know, as I've said before, Lancelot is the continuous touchstone through this, right? And we're going to get back to some Lancelot. I was uh, uh, glad to uh, uh, see Lancelot again. Uh, in uh, the adventures of Sir Lacote Maltile, uh, which we'll which we'll get to uh, ton uh, tonight. Um, 
I was about to say, I hope. No, no, no. I'm confident we are going to get to the adventures of La Cote Maltail um, uh, and uh, see again Lancelot's position and role. And again, which I think in the context of seeing how Arthur is taking a back seat, I think becomes more and more interesting, really, in thinking about how Lancelot and Arthur are seen to be related. We'll come back to this later on. What does it mean to say, you know, it's it's very common to say things like, you know, this sort of love triangle, right, which is at the, at the center of the Arthurian story, this love triangle between the great king, his queen, and the greatest of that king's knights, right? But what exactly does that mean? What is exactly the role that Lancelot fills in the court of King Arthur? And that's one, I think, one of the really important things to see as we're moving through this here. Um, uh, yeah, okay, so let's, uh, let's get back to the text here. Okay. I also warned you, in addition to warning you before, that uh, Arthur himself was scarcely going to appear in the middle of this, uh, you know, for the, the bulk of the center of this book. I also warned that the book of Sir Tristram de Leonis was the most wandering and digressive of, the, of all of the sections of this book. And one of the things that we can, um, one of the things that I find sort of interesting about this section is... Maori seems to have made a particular narrative choice here, right? And this is one of the one of the ways in which I find the Winchester manuscript uh, version of the text so much more interesting than Caxton's version of the text. The two of them are very close to each other, of course, in the actual text. There's some differences in wording, but it's relative. They're 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 relatively close. But the way that Caxton divides it into books, uh, books and chapters, kind of masks this, again, to me, very interesting dynamic that we get here in the book of Sir Tristram de Leonis, and that is the quite different narrative strategy that Maori undertakes here in the middle. You will recall that most of the beginning of this book, he was... His, his approach was to divide it into chunks, right? He would take and he would tell, uh, you know, th this one story, and then he would sort of stop and say, okay, the end, now I'm going to tell a different story. Like, now I'm going to tell the story about how uh, King Arthur went to war uh, with uh, Rome, right? And of course, that was especially, um, that was especially, uh, uh, noteworthy because of course he, he was obviously using a different source we, you know we were looking at how much he was relying on the middle english alliterative mort arthur there um but he stopped doing that now right and of course after that we had the really admirable contained book of sir lancelot right and then the all equally admirable and equally well contained book of sir gareth right now we have the book of sir tristram which is totally different, right? Within this book, instead of just saying, all right, I'm going to tell the story of Sir Tristram, right? Maybe it's longer, right? Maybe this book needs to be longer. It's not just this short series of adventures like we got um, for Lancelot or this kind of one-off story um, of Sir Gareth, who will return as a, as a sort of minor character, but Ger Sir Gareth will never be the focus of the narrative. Again, it's, it's kind of a one-off story of Sir Gareth. Um, you could see, um, you could see that um, 
Mallory is uh, uh, is doing something different here. And, you know, this is a really good question from uh, Brian asking about are the French sources on which Mallory is basing his work this meandering? Well, I mean, meandering like this is definitely a feature of, of you know, of uh, medieval literature. I mean, uh, uh, digressions, what we call digressions, uh, what modern readers call digressions, medieval readers would have called bonus content, right? So, you know, there was a much, much, much higher tolerance for digressions um, because, uh, again, like free material, right? Who doesn't like that? So um, that's <laughs> exactly Tarlonio. It's like it's like free add-on DLC was exactly what it was like uh, from uh, from a medieval point of view. So. Did they meander? Yes. But Brian, see, it's not just that he's following a source here, which is itself meandering, right? As I was emphasizing, especially with the Tristram stuff at the beginning, he is using French sources, right? The French Tristram's uh, uh, sources. And really the French Tristram sources that he's using for the Tristram and Isode material uh, in this book is actually more separate from the rest of the narrative than almost anything we've read so far. The only thing that's similar would be the the, the Roman stuff, the alliterative Mort Arthur stuff. Um, I won't say that the Tristram legend was like hermetically sealed from the Arthurian story. It was it, it wasn't. It was part of the same overall world, but it was not really linked. I mean, we don't really get like Lancelot and Tristram working out their difficulties here. And, you know, uh, La Belle Zoe doesn't usually like adopt Guinevere as a pen pal, you know, to help her through the hard times. Uh, the story of Sir Tristram is, or excuse me, the story of Tristan Isolde is very, you know, the French version is very much, um, a, you know, a sort of a self-contained story, right? So you'd think um, if... Maori were even just adopting even a, a, a he barely even needs a resolution on his own part right to keep it separate it was already separate instead what we see him doing is turning his back on the separateness of it and attempting to integrate it right which okay he could have done that while still keeping it a, a discrete story like he could have just had a, you know a, the just like the story of sir gareth right has a beginning and a middle and an end right he could have done a Tristram and his old story, which had a beginning, middle, and an end. He's he's going to kind of do that, except he's not going to actually do the end. But whatever, he's got it's got a beginning. It's it's got a beginning and a middle anyway, right? But instead, but the thing that he doesn't do is keep it contained as like what he announces at the beginning. That is, namely, that he's going to write this the book of Sir Tristram de Leonis in the model, it would seem, of the book of Sir Gareth and the book of Sir Lancelot that came before it. Instead. He says, now we're going to turn unto Sir Lamarack, right? Now we're going to tell the story of Lacote, of uh, Sir Lacote Malatile, which is one of the most random digressions in a sense. Like that, that is a, a different but fairly self-contained story that he is sort of shoehorning into the middle of the story of Sir Tristram with almost no obvious narrative justification for that right like why do we get i mean i'm not objecting to the story of lacote uh, sir lacote malatel i really like it in in a lot of ways not my favorite night in the world but uh but I, but i quite like the story in some ways I, i'm not saying we don't need it or that it should have been cut but what i'm saying is why didn't we get a freestanding um 
you know, the book of Sir Lakote Malatile, right? Uh, we could have done, right? Who would have objected to that? But that's, for some reason, that's no longer how he's thinking. Maori seems to be attempting to undertake a different kind of narrative here for some reason. And I'm not sure why, right? Is it, uh, is it because, okay, full stop. I have no idea why but I'm keen to guess, right? So uh, <laughs> having declared my complete lack of knowledge about why Maori did this, um, I can only theorize. And my theory about it is connected with what I was saying at the beginning of the section on Sir Tristram uh, and La Belle Isode, And that is that it seems fairly clear to me that Ma that Maori didn't just want to tell that story as an apparently freestanding Arthurian tale, like he did the tale of Sir Gareth. Um, he wanted to connect it because it needs to be in contact with the story of Lancelot and Guinevere, right? Of course, he literally puts the characters in contact with each other. Uh, the ongoing epistolary relationship between uh, Tristram and Isolde and Lancelot and Guinevere, I always find charming and hilarious as we move forward. We'll see some of that today. Um, but anyway, so he, I, I, I think he doesn't want to isolate it because I think his impulse to integrate it, his impulse to 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 bring those two really close. It's not enough just to have, here's the story of Tristram, and then next we'll tell the story of Lancelot and Guinevere and hope that you remember to sort of look back and forth, right? Um, I, I think he doesn't want to do that. Um, at least he doesn't seem like he wants to do that. So um, instead, what we have is this sort of bizarrely digressive thing. So again, why, why? Why put the adventure of Sir Lakote Maltel all of a sudden in the middle of this, right? Um, I was about to say, we now interrupt the story of Tristram to bring you the story of Sir Lakote Maltel, but that's not even it, right? It's, we now carry on interrupting the story of Sir Tristram in order to bring you the story of Sir Lakote uh, Maltel, right? But why? Notice it accomplishes something, right? It's not totally irrelevant to the progression of the overall story. It's not irrelevant because Lancelot's in it, right? Um, and Lancelot ends up playing not a central, but a significant role in it. Um, and that seems to me to be the common thread. Um, what is the one thing that seems to me to connect all of the narratives that he wants to tell uh, in the story in the book of Sir Tristram de Leonès? Ultimately, it's the story of Lancelot and Guinevere that he wants to tell, I think. Um, that's the, the, if I can see a thread that would seem to hold all of them together, that would seem to draw them all together, that might justify, perhaps, in the mind of the writer, try, uh, you know, trying to hold them all together in one big book rather than uh, just breaking this down into a series of uh, more easily digestible and uh, 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 more sort of whole and simple books. Um, it's, it's the, the way in which he wants them all to work together. Um, and perhaps he was worried about the separateness. I don't really know. Um, yes. Now, hang on, Tarlonio. That is not Critfic. It is okay to speculate about what the author might have been thinking. Critfic is when you 
make up a narrative about it's it's when you resist doing close reading of a of of a text and instead speculate about what the author what the author was so and so when you say this book was re, or when you say the hobbit movies were really bad um and what makes the hobbit movies really bad was like the whole shift from two films to three films uh you know that's what made it really bad that's critfic because it's, you're saying the film is bad, but you're not talking about what, like the actual film, right? And the badness thereof, right? You're saying, I'm, I'm instead inventing a narrative about how the badness came to be. That's the classic critfic. It's okay to speculate, especially if you make it clear that you are only speculating. So it's okay to speculate based on the evidence of the text as to what the author might have been thinking. Now, in the one, it's, it's okay. It's not necessarily a very, um, respectable thing to do <laughs> because at the end of the day it doesn't much matter uh what mallory was thinking um and for me personally um that is like the text that we have is what matters why mallory did it can only be sort of a matter of curiosity i of course can't help myself um uh uh indulging that curiosity but but more than that whenever i'm thinking about questions like that whenever i'm thinking about questions of like why did the author do that? In a sense, what I'm really doing, of course, is thinking about what is what are the patterns of this text, right? What are the threads that bind this text together? Whether or not Maori was actually thinking that, um, uh, who knows, right? And uh, uh, and 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 what's more, as I said, I don't especially care. Like, you know, if the text leads me to these to this conclusion about like the the significance of the development of the of the Lancelot and Guinevere narrative throughout this section. It's not like I would be dissuaded if Mallory rose up, you know, from the dead and said, you know, like the Night of the Living author, right, and said, uh, oh, talk about a horror film. Oh, man, the Night of the Living author. Um, there's a lot of jokes that could be made about that, but I will stop making them. Anyway, um, as if Mallory, you know, clawed his way out of his uh, out of his unquiet grave and said, no, that's not what I was thinking at all. I would be like, uh okay, man, but like the thread is still totally there. Look at it, right? I'll show you where it is, right? Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, okay. So uh, yeah, good. All right. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, <laughs> Stephen covers imagining Jacob Marley warning you that tonight you'll be visited by three authors. Oh man, that's like a nightmare. Uh, whew, ah, yeah, Brian, you're right. Unwitting thematic consistency is still thematic consistency. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, again, like the, uh, I, uh, um, yeah, what, um, what authors have to say about what they had in mind, uh, you know, what they were trying to accomplish is much less interesting to me than what they actually accomplished, right? Uh, as sometimes authors accomplish much more than they set out to accomplish. Sometimes they don't accomplish the things that they try to accomplish or think that they accomplished. Um, at the end of the day, the book itself matters so much more uh, than what the author thinks they wrote, really. Um, again, it's interesting if you happen to be interested in the author, like the the person, but uh, to me again, the book much more much more important. Um, anyway, 
that's my opinion and why the night of the living author is uh is uh is uh, like a, a horror movie to me but anyway um so i wanted to start just with this passage which seems to me a really classic uh example of mallory uh <laughs> kind of dithering about his narrative structure here right so we're this is right when he's leaving the story of sir tristram behind to follow lamorak so remember so we had lamorak and sir tristram came together so we're still kind of following the tristram thread right we're still we're, we're kind of starting to lose it but it's still there so tristram has gone off and he's married uh, la not so belle isolde, the la not quite so belle as the other isolde is old. Um, uh, and uh, he's married her, but remember they haven't slept together, so that makes it okay in some way. And uh, except not to Guinevere or to Lancelot or to La Belle Isolde, uh, obviously. Um, Anyway, so but they're coming back over to England and they get shipwrecked on this island, which is like the same island that, that La Sir Lamarack has gotten shipwrecked on. And so the two of them meet together after the, uh, you know, sort of uh, unpleasantness that came before. You'll remember the chastity horn episode and all that kind of thing. And then when they meet, they both actually get along famously and agree to work together. And Lamarack like, lets Sir Tristram take care of the giant problem and, uh, you know, on, on the island, the giant who's persecuting everybody. Uh, and... Uh, lets Tristram take all the glory and praises him for it. So, you know, in the end, everybody lives sort of happily ever after, right? Uh, but we're still kind of following Tristram's story. But now from that place, right, where uh, Sir Tristram and Sir Lamorak diverge and start going their separate ways, surprisingly, instead of following um, uh, Sir Tristram, we follow Sir Lamorak. Right. Um, so turn we unto Sir Lamarack, that rode toward King Arthur's court. But he can't quite break away yet, right? He has one of those oops moments, right? Parentheses. The parentheses, the parentheses are, are modern editorial, right? So you have to kind of imagine this without the parentheses, right? Uh, toward King Arthur's court. And so Sir Tristram, his wife, and Sir Cahidens, took a vessel and silent into Bretagne unto King Howell, where they were welcome. And when they heard of these adventures, they marveled of his noble deeds. No turn we, no, no, no really turn we unto Sir Lamorak, that when he was departed from Sir Tristramus, he rode out of the forest till he come to an ermitage. And when the ermit saw him, he asked it from whence he come. Right, so now finally we're gaining some momentum again. I love this kind of this sort of false start. Right, it, it's um, it's one of those. I find uh, Mallory's uh, sort of moments where he seems kind of amateur. Right, where where he uh, uh, is kind of seems to be like messing up or not sure where he's going. I find them very very charming, um, disarming actually. Um, you know often when you're reading a very clever, very expert author, right, who is always in control of his material, uh, you know, you can sometimes as a reader get a little, I don't know what, suspicious maybe, if that's the right way to say it, right? Like, uh, you know, you're in the hands of uh, uh, of someone who is like turning you and manipulating you in lots of different ways and you you kind of know it probably, right? Um, with Sir Thomas Mallory, it's it's extremely disarming, right? Because you, you see something like this and you're like, oh, this is just, this is adorable, right? Um, he was about to turn to Sir Lamorak and then he remembered, wait, oh shoot, I forgot Tristram's wife and Tristram's brother-in-law still in England, right? I've got to, I've got to get them. They, they need to go home, 
to to Britannia. To I, I got to send them back to Brittany because I don't want them around <laughs> for much longer. Right? It's Tristram is right. He he went out with his wife. He brought his wife along, his new young wife along with him. And uh, but that's inconvenient. We need to get her home. So uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna. But I forgot to pack her off. So uh, we interrupted. And again, I think about this without not only without uh, parentheses, but without any punctuation at all, right? And you can see sort of the flow of his thought. So torn we unto Sir Lamarack, that rode toward King Arthur's court. And so Sir Tristram, his wife, and Sir Cahydens took a vessel and silent into Britannia. And it's like, wait, wait, what? What just happened there? Oh, wait, now turn we. It's the, the now that I find most adorable. Now turn we, having remembered to do that, now turn we under Sir Lamarack. Um, and that's really cute remember this is all being it's a, the 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 kind of editing that would take care of this problem very easily is much uh was much harder to do bef not, not only before the word processor but even before print right um so um it's all good anyway okay um let's go on to uh, follow Sir Lamarack here a little bit. We're not going to follow Sir Lamarack for that long, but that's okay. Neither does Mallory. Um, the thing I want to focus on with Sir Lamarack as we look at his adventures is, again, in a sense, I want to be a little careful about this, but in a sense, what I want to ask is, what do we learn from Sir Lamarack, right? What's the What's the point? of Sir Lamarack's adventures. Um, is there a way, there's a reason, right? There's a reason that he, I, I don't think that he's, the story of Sir Lamarack is not nearly so well fleshed out to suggest that this, the book does not show a very great interest in following the career of Sir Lamarack in any kind of complete way, nor are we setting up a, cohesive narrative about Sir Lamarack, again, like we did with Sir Gareth, right? We don't get either one of those things. So if we're going to break sort of the flow of the narrative in order to step aside and follow along with Sir Lamarack, um, there's probably a reason why we're doing that, right? It's going to, this is going to be important for some reason, right? And so that's what I want to be, um, that's what I want to be thinking about. Um, what is sort of the, what do we see here? And of course, one of the things that is for me impossible uh, not to do is to be doing comparison and contrast, right? We've seen now already lots of knights traveling around on lots of adventures. Um, how does Lamarack compare? Um, what are we seeing with Sir Lamarack that maybe we don't see? With others, uh, for what things is Lamarack going to be a kind a, a, a kind of point of contact, right? Uh, for the other knights that we've seen that we have been seeing. Um, anyway, okay. So on the morn, Sir Lamarack departed, and as he rode, he saw four knictes ficked against one, and that on knict defended him well. But at the last, the four knictes had him down, and then Sir Lamarack went betwixt them, asked. Uh, asked them why they would slay that on knicked, and said it was sham for against on. Thou shalt well wit, said the four knictes, that he is false. So that is your tale, said Sir Lamarack, and when I hear him speak, I will say as ye say. Sir, said Sir Lamarack, how say you? Can you not excuse you none otherwise, but that ye are a false knicked, 
which would be a pretty poor excuse, you have to admit. Sir, yet can I excuse me, both with my ward and with my hondas, and that will I mock good upon one of the best of him, my body to his body. Then spake they all at Onus, We will not jeopardy our bodies, but we too well, they said, and King Arthur were here himself. It shall not lie in his power to save his life. That is said too largely, said Sir Lamarack, but many speaketh behind a man more than he will say to his fast, and for because of your wardes ye shall understand that I am one of the simplest of King Arthur's court, and in the worship of my lord now do your best, and in the despite of you I shall rescue him. Okay, so what do we see here in this uh, in this incident, right? Um, okay. First, notice that sir, we remember already. We should remember already that we have a parallel for this scene, right? Lamorak comes in and he sees four knights attacking one. Now, again, we've seen this happen before. Remember, we had this with Sir Lancelot. This happened to Sir Lancelot um, when he was already tucked up in bed, right in the upstairs garret uh, of that nice guy's, that nice old guy's house, and then he saw four knights attacking one knight. Um, and the one night running away in that case, and he remember he jumps out the window, he let like lets himself down with the sheet, uh, and goes running out, uh, and insists on fighting against all four of them on the behalf of the one night who you will remember turned out to be Sir Kay, and then afterwards, uh, Lancelot took Sir Kay's armor. And uh, that was how those uh, 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 sort of comical events began back in the book of Sir Lancelot. So we have established pretty clearly, and it's not so very difficult to see, that uh, a good knight like Sir Lancelot and Sir Lamorak are going to object when they see something like this going down, right? Um, it was sham for against on, and it's not only shame for the four knights to attack the one knight, but if the one knight sees four knights attack the one knight and doesn't, and he does not step in. He just stands there and watch that. That's shame unto him. Right? Remember, Lancelot was uh, uh, very strong in his wording about this, right? And you may also remember that Sir Gawain uh, was ultimately ditched by his 15 year old damsel back in the story of Gawain, Uwain, and Marholt <clears throat> when he didn't step in on the the part of Sir Peleus when he was, or King Peleus, uh, when he was uh, being opposed by the Ten Knights in Rona. Different circumstances. They're not quite as tightly parallel as the situation with Lancelot and Kay. Um, but still, we can see uh, certainly that expectation, right? But now notice what Lamarack comes in with here. He does not automatically, it's not just about siding with the underdog, right? Um, one thing that we see from Lancelot is, or from Lamarack here rather, is that he is very interested in the rights and wrongs of the situation here. Like, to tell me what's going on. This is a trial, right? He holds a spontaneous trial here. Um, he, he rebukes the four, saying it's shame for them to attack this other guy four on one. And he, but he asks them, why would you slay him, right? What's going on here? Because um, you know it's good to ascertain the facts, right? And he does work to ascertain the facts. Uh, and notice that they accuse him of being false, right? Uh, Though shalt well wheat that he is false. In which case, so their argument essentially is, oh yeah, no, this isn't a shameful ganging up upon, right? No, no, no. This is like an execution, 
right? This is a false traitor knight, uh, and we are we are doing him uh, to death, right? That's that's sort of the it's, it's uh, we're we're uh, although our actions might appear shameful, we're totally in the right here, right? Um, Sir Lamarack, however, we see his he is very interested in justice here, right? That is your tala, and when I hear him speak, I will say as he say, right? Um, he he's he's like, well, we we have to give the other guy a chance to say his part, right? I'm not just going to take your word for it. Um, so that's uh, that's that is interesting. A lot of um, and I think here, especially of T.H. White, there's a lot of concern with the with the relationship between might and right, um, especially thinking back to the Arthurian world and in particular with the whole dynamic of trials by combat. Um, and this, of course, is going to be an issue that we're going to come back to later on in this book, um, especially in the context of trials by combat explicitly. Um, but I think it's important to notice that they do not have, you know, the knights, the good knights in this text do not have any kind of simplistic uh, 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 view on the relationship between might and right. Um, yeah, so how is Lamarack supposed to know who's in the right? What evidence does he need in order to be convinced who's in the right and who's in the wrong here? Right. Um, notice he gets almost nothing. In fact, you'll notice, notice what never comes up once in this entire discussion. Do you notice what they don't ever talk about? Either the one night or the four nights? Not even once does any of them mention <laughs> what it's all about. Exactly, Veronica. Like the facts of the case don't come up. Neither of them bring it up, right? What is he being false about? What did he do or not do? What did he say or not say? We don't have any idea, right? <laughs> it's not, that's not, that's not even relevant, right? So, what is relevant? How does Lamarack decide to take the part of the one against the four? And all you have to see, all Lamarack has to see, or rather all he has to hear, is how they position themselves, right? The one knight says, yet I can excuse myself, right? Both with my words and with my hands. And that will I muck good upon one of the best of him, my body to his body. He doesn't say anything about the facts of the case, but he does say, I am willing to jeopard to 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 put my own life in jeopardy in order to prove that I am true, and I, I'm I'm one on one with any of them, right? Um, I stand ready to excuse myself. They say, no, 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 we're not going to jeopardy our bodies, right? We refuse to do. We refuse to meet him in fair combat in order to uh, show who's right and who's wrong here, right? Um, and then they go on to add that fatal rider. But we do well, and King Arthur were here himself, which of course, as we have observed, he's so not here. But anyway, and King Arthur were here himself, it shall not lie in his power 
to solve his life. So first, their unwillingness to uh, uh, jeopardy their bodies is a bad sign. It's not proof, but it's a bad sign. If you've got one side that says, yes, I'm willing to, I'm willing to prove this with both my hands and my words, and the other one who says, I'm not, it doesn't prove that the one person is in the right and the other person in the wrong, but it's a bad look, right? Um, but then they go on to add to that, if King Arthur himself were here, it should not lie in his, in Arthur's, King Arthur's power to save that guy's life, right? Um, we, why, how are they invoking King Arthur here? Do you see um, uh, the significance of the way they're using Arthur's name? What do you see what, what Arthur's name stands for here, right? It clearly stands for, for justice for judgment, right? Um, King Arthur would have the authority to make a judicial decision here, right? And they say, even if King Arthur himself were here, so even under the circumstances where the fullness of royal authority and, you know, judiciary power were to exert itself on his behalf, we would still disregard that. We're going to kill him whether or not. We don't care about justice. I mean, in, in the simplest terms, they are saying we don't care about justice at all. That's kind of why we were attacking him four on one to begin with, right? Not only are we unwilling to fight him one on one um, because we're likely cowards, but um, we will not submit to anyone's judgment, not even King Arthur's, right? Um, Brian, that's exactly right. They recognize no authority. Uh, but themselves. That's exactly what they're saying there. Um, and David, I agree. They're not only showing disrespect uh, uh, to Arthur, but complete disregard uh, for. I would, I would, I would even go further. Not only disregard for Arthur, but disregard for like the concept of justice, which clearly Lamarack thinks is important. Right. Um, this settles the case for Lamarack. Lamarack doesn't even need to know what the point of contention is. He does not need to know the facts of the case. One has submitted himself to judgment. The other's categorically unwilling to submit themselves to judgment, adding on to the fact that they were already acting shamefully, right? Um, uh, despite the shamefulness of their actions, he was willing to give them a, sh a chance right, to prove their case, to state their case at least. Uh, instead, they showed that they care nothing whatsoever uh, about justice. And so he know he's now confident who's in the right and who's in the wrong, right? Um, uh, and notice that he explicitly puts himself uh, in the place of the king, right? Um, that is said too largely, he says. I love that. I love that phrase. Um, to say something largely means to make a boast, right? Um, that is said too largely. He's saying, now in saying that, you've just, I think, bitten off more you could chew right there, right? Um, that is too large a saying for you. Um, many speak behind a man more than he will say to his face. It's easy enough to say, I disregard the justice of King Arthur when you feel confident that King Arthur is safely far away, right? But I as the least of Arthur's knights, right, am here to represent the authority of King Arthur. And so 
uh, as the sort of spokesperson of the uh, royal authority and of the justice, which you are currently ignoring and dissing, uh, I am going to uh, make you pay for that. Um, yeah, exactly, uh, Karita. It's about talking big. Said too largely, uh, talking big is is a, a, a perfect, almost direct, literal translation of it, right? Um, yeah, yeah, talking big. Exactly. Okay. Uh, again, I think the principles here are really important. Again, notice good knights care about this kind of thing. And notice how we keep getting positive and negative examples. Um, I said before, much earlier on, many months ago now, nearer to the beginning of this class, one of the things that I find so fascinating about Maori stories is they're not simple. They're not simplistic. All of Arthur's knights, um, you know, all of the knights that Maori depicts, even Lancelot, even the paragon of knighthood, right, are complicated characters. They are like real people. And some of them are good at some things and bad at other things. And we see them doing things right and doing things wrong in order for us to get a sense of how knights are supposed to act, right? Uh, to, in order to try to build a standard by which we can really understand um, what's good and what's bad, that thing that we've been kind of struggling to do from within the text from the beginning, we've got to do a lot of adding and subtracting. Right. And I think this is pretty clear, clearly an example of something that Lamarack is doing very well. Um, and I, I, I am one of the simplest of King Arthur's court. He doesn't come in saying I'm the third best knight in the world. FYI. Right. No, he uh, he is he is like the least of Arthur's knights. Uh, it's Lamarack's particular strength, his humility, as I said last time. Um so that was, um, oh, shoot, I'm blanking. What's the name of that knight? Sir Froll, I think. Sir Froll is that knight that he rescues, that, that he rescues from the other four. Of course, he goes on to fight the four knights right after that and kills two of them with the first two blows. Very Lancelot-ish, right? Uh, and the other two run away. Um, so uh, anyway, he, um, uh, uh, it's Sir Froll, I believe, whom he rescues and who travels with him for a while. Um, but uh, then he uh, he they he uh, has a few other adventures and then departs. So they departed. Found within twelve or three days, Sir Lamarack found a knight at a well sleeping, and his lady sat with him in wacket. Okay, so lady sitting awake, knight asleep next to a well. Of course, right? Um, uh, Remember Lancelot sleeping under the apple tree, being kidnapped by four sorceresses. Uh, remember the damsels sitting by the well, um, the damsels picked up by Gawain, Owain, and Marhalt. Remember uh, the well in which uh, La Belle Isolde almost drowned herself, right? We have lots of precedents for these kinds of things. So here's the knight sleeping and the lady sitting with him awake. Rixo come Sir Gawain and took the Kniktis laddie and set here up behind his squire. So Sir Lamarack rode after Sir Gawain and said, Sir, turn again. What will ye do with me? I am nephew unto King Arthur. Sir, for that cause I will forbear you, other else that laddie should abide with me, other else ye should just with me. 
Then Sir Gawain turned him and ran to him that oaked the laddie with his spear. But the Knecht with pure meeked smote down Sir Gawain and took his laddie with him. Okay, so there's a, a little bit of a, a lapse here. That is, we're not told about this. So the knight was sleeping. Uh, and that presumably is the knight that awked the, the laddie, right? The, the, the knight who owns the lady. The, the knight who's, who, 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 who's that lady is at that point, right? The guy in custody of the lady. And we've seen this happen, right? Where like the custody of ladies uh, uh, can be kind of passed around like Sir Seguardes' wife with Sir Bleoberus when he came to court, like La Belle Isode herself when Sir Palamides came, right? Um, uh, so uh, uh, yeah, David, I agree. Uh, David Orbach says he's picking her up and setting her on a horse like she's an object that just sits still. I think not, uh, in the sense, like, it seems that, uh, the knight woke up right, and apparently, uh, came after, uh, Sir Gawain. So I'm thinking from that, that we're not told explicitly that she's kicking up a ruckus. I'm thinking she probably kicked up a ruckus and apparently the knight, uh, the knight is woken up. Um, so, uh, anyway, so here's Gawain and the sleeping knight, the formerly sleeping knight, uh, has roused himself and is coming after Sir Gawain, of course, to rescue his lady, whom Gawain has just made off with, right? Um, because there she was, uh, attended only by a sleeping knight, so apparently in Sir Gawain's world, free lady, right? Um, uh, and then he beats him, right? The knight, this formerly sleeping knight, smites down Sir Gawain, and takes his lady with him. So he takes his lady back. He has recovered his lady from Sir Gawain. And Josiah, I absolutely agree that um, <laughs> you snooze, you lose. Yeah, that would seem to be uh, that would seem to be Gawain's motto here, James. I agree. Um, so, um, okay. So, but Josiah, I agree with you. Gawain is 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 has graduated to outright antagonist here. Yeah, yeah, he's no longer just a more flawed than usual knight. Um, this is, he's just creating problems, right? Um, I, I, going about the countryside, just stealing people's damsels because you can, right? Um, uh, that's a problem. Um, and poor Sir Lamarack is put into an awkward place. Gawain's pulling rank is extremely unattractive. Sir, turn again, he says, so says Lamarack to Gawain. Dude, you just stole that guy's damsel, right? What's up with that? And he's and his only answer, Gawain's only answer is, what are you going to do? I'm King Arthur's nephew over here, right? Like that gives him a right to steal damsels from people, right? Or at least immunity to reprisal for whatever it is he might seem to do. But anyway, Sleeping Knight then knocks down Sir Gawain and takes his lady back. All this sighed Sir Lamarock and said to himself, But I revenge my fellow. He will say me dishonor in King Arthur's court. Then Sir Lamarack returned and proffered that knight to Ficht. Sir, I am ready, sighed he. And there they come together with all their meat, and Sir Lamarack smote the knight through both sides that he fell to the earth dead. Well, that's a bit of an unfortunate ending. 
I think, however, that that is the point. So I know this is tough. Jennifer Pope was just saying, so Lamarack kills this guy for defending his lady against the king's nephew. Well, okay, uh, yes and no, right? Yes and no. Um, yes, that's what happens. I mean, yeah, he does kill him. Uh, and he, this formerly sleeping knight, was not in the wrong Right. I mean, he did knock down Sir Gawain, but Sir Gawain richly deserved it. Right. Um, two things I think are important here. One. It's an accident. He's not trying to kill him. Right. Uh, you know, jousting is a contact sport. These things happen. Um, notice that Sir Lamar, the battle is in no ways dishonorable or unfair. Right. Um he uh he Lamarack proffers that Kneek defeat, right? He challenges him and he's like, Hey, you want to fight? And the and the other knight says, Yeah, all right, let's do this. I'm ready, right? And so they go and they fight, and you know, Sir Lamarack's spear smites him through both sides and he falls to the earth dead. Like it happens, it's not optimal, right, for this kind of an encounter. Um, but uh, you know, remember this is why we get a lot of incidents that we've seen, especially back to the story of Sir Balin, you remember, um, of, you know, what is one night's fair fight is another night is, is another person's murder. Right. Um, you know, a lot of people who are the friends and relations of the knights who come off worse in encounters like this, who hold a grudge against the knight who killed him. Um, understandably though, again, like I, it, it happens, right contact sport people right we're fighting with deadly weapons here you know uh you you kind of have to sign the waiver before you go into this right you know it's um <laughs> exactly exactly uh matthew hershenroder adding some dialogue for sir lamarack here you seem a decent fellow i hate to kill you yeah yeah um yeah so um yeah, Rachel says, and by the way, Rachel, so good to see you at Magnolia Moot. Rachel says, it seems like these knights fight for much less reason, uh, and some of these fights lead to death, but as long as it was honorable, it's all okay. Yeah, I mean, okay, of course, you know, Rachel, the, I would add the proviso, which of course I'm sure you're thinking already, as long as you give mercy when the other person yields, right? That's why I remember it was such a big deal when Gawain didn't do that, when the knight attempted to yield to him and he tried to decapitate him anyway and ended up accidentally decapitating his girlfriend instead. That's um, a big deal, right? Not offering uh, mercy is a, is a, is, is a super big deal because you, you need to have that out, right? We don't need, everybody doesn't need to fight to the death every time you fight. Fighting is like a sport and it's fine. Um, but um yeah anyway so lamarack fighting with him certainly the way in which he fights with him is not bad now why does he fight with him has lamarack made a bad choice here Well, what, what is his choice? Gawain is upset, right? Gawain just, 
you know, that sleeping night just took back the lady which he had rightfully stolen, right? So, Matthew, it's all your fault. Now I'm going to be doing the Princess Bride in my head all night. Um, anyway, um, he just stole back the lady which Gawain had rightfully stolen. So, um, uh, Gawain is upset. Lamarack says to himself, but I revenge my fellow. He will sigh me dishonor in King Arthur's court. So, Lamarack is wanting to, feels that he needs to fight for Sir Gawain because Sir Gawain is a fellow knight of the round table, right? And if he sees a knight of the round table dishonored, right, defeated, and does not take his part, um, does not offer to fight with the guy who just beat him, he would be dishonored. Um, well, more than that, Gawain will see to it that he is dishonored, right? Gawain is going to slander him if he doesn't do this. Um, now, Yes. Um, uh, David, you have his reasoning correctly. If he doesn't take the side of a round table knight, then Arthur's court will think bad of him. Again, with the added proviso, Gawain will make sure that they uh, think badly of him. Um, uh, he will say me dishonor in King Arthur's court, I think speaks a world of... Um, well, a world of bad about Sir Gawain, or at least of Sir Lamarack's assessment of Gawain's character, right? Um, now, one of the things that I think is important to remember here is Lamarack fighting in a wrong cause. <sighs> Not necessarily. Okay. It would depend. See, here's one of the problems here. One of the problems here is that we don't really know. This whole thing takes an unfortunate turn, right? When the knight is killed. That wasn't Lamarack's intention. Um, uh, what I'm interested to know, or what I would be interested to know, is what Sir Lamarack's plan had been. So Lamarack's plan is, I'm going to adjust with this guy. I'm going to knock him off his horse. Pretty good odds of that. I'm pretty good, right? So I'm going to knock this guy off his horse. If I knock him off his horse, maybe he's going to be like, hey, like, you know, dismount and fight me with swords to the uttermost. And I'm going to be like, no way, man. It's all good. And in fact, keep your lady, right? It's all about the lady, right? The lady is the grievance between him and Gawain. So in his, the only way in which Lamarack would really put himself in the wrong here would be if he is fighting for Sir Gawain's right to have the lady, which he has none of, right? As Lamarack obviously knows. So if Lamarack knocks this dude off his horse and takes his lady from him and says, all right, I'm taking this lady and I'm giving her to Sir Gawain and there's nothing you can do about it, then Lamarack is unequivocally, unquestionably in the wrong, or at least he is championing the bad cause of Sir Gawain. But he is not necessarily championing Gawain's cause here. He is only... Uh, trying to, like, uh, repeal the dishonor to a knight of Arthur's court. He just watched a knight of Arthur's court get knocked down, 
right? And so as an, you know, for the honor of Arthur's court, he needs to step in here, right? And if he doesn't, he knows that Gawain is going to, is going to badmouth him, right? Um, this is not, that, that is not a slight that would uh, uh, be overlooked, right? So he needs to fight for the honor and reputation of, of Arthur's court. But again, that doesn't mean he has to take the, the dude's lady from him and give the dude's lady back to Sir Gawain, right? He could still knock him off his horse, say, okay, can we be friends now? You know, that guy's my fellow. We're both knights of the round table, but you seem a decent fellow, right? Um, uh, you can have your lady um, between you and me. Gawain is kind of a jerk and he shouldn't have done that, but you knocked him off his horse, so I did not knock you off his horse and it's all fair, right? Um, you know, that um, that's my guess at what Lamarack was trying to accomplish, but it doesn't work out that way because he accidentally kills the dude in this jousting encounter, right? Now, there are a couple other factors there that I think are really, um, that I think are really important here. One, Josiah points out that Gawain's appeal to Arthur um, uh, mirrors the Four Knights' dismissal of Arthur earlier on, which puts Lamarack in an awkward spot, right? I agree. We can see some sorts of parallels here, right? Those other guys were saying, hey, we disregard Arthur. We don't care about Arthur, right? And Lamarack is in the, you know, then, so he, he says to Gawain, hey, dude, Gawain, what are you doing, right? And Gawain's like, dude, King's nephew over here. What are you going to do about it, right? So that puts Lamarack in the position of having to say, well, I don't care if you're King Arthur's nephew or not, right? Um, you know, that's, uh, it's it's awkward, at least. I like, you know right is still right, and Lamarack knows what's right. And just because, obviously, just because Sir Gawain do it doesn't make it, um, doesn't make it right. And can I add, nobody knows that better than Sir Lamarack. Anybody remember who Sir Lamarack is? What's his genealogy again? Who's Sir Lamarack the son of? Anybody recall that? Anybody remember? Who's his dad? Quiz time. Okay, no problem. I'll remind you. King Pelinor. Yeah, you got it. A couple of people got it. Yep, yep. Matt and Jennifer. Good, good job. Good job. King Pelinor is Sir Lamorak's dad. Okay. Sir Lamorak is the greatest of King Pelinor's sons, at least the most, you know, the, 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 the greatest knight of them. Remember what happened to King Pelinor? Gawain murdered him, right? Remember that? Remember go that scene where Gawain was like, I'm gonna take this guy out right now. And then Gaharis, his brother, was like, No, wait until I get knighted. Then we can take him out together, right? So, and they did, right? They um uh they uh they murdered Lamarack's dead. So Gawain and his brothers, not Gareth, murdered Lamarack's father. Nobody knows better than Sir Lamarack um, that Sir Gawain is not, like, that That everything Sir Gawain does isn't, isn't right, just because he happens to be Arthur's nephew, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
James Stevens says, wasn't it King Pelinor that didn't help that knight and lady at that other well because he was on a quest? But yep, that was King Pelinor. Uh-huh. And here's his son in another awkward position with a knight and a lady at a well. Yes, it's almost like, again, we're supposed to be putting these things together. King Pelinor did nothing, and that was bad. Sir Lamorak has done something. But... So... Again, these are complicated situations. Has Sir Lamorak done just the right thing here? No, I don't think Lamorak has done just the right thing here. I think that what seems clearly to be the right thing is to confront Gawain and say, dude, yeah, you got knocked off your horse, but you completely deserve it, you jerk, right? You can't act like that. Um, that would, I think, be the right thing to do. Like when I asked myself, what would Lancelot do? I think that's what Lancelot would have done. In this situation, right? What does Lamarack do? Lamarack tries to sort of thread the needle, right? Um, at least that's my reading of this, that he is, he's not taking Gawain's part. He's not convinced that Gawain is is in the right here, um, but he's trying to kind of have it both ways. How can I keep Gawain off my back and yet also serve the cause of justice? And he fails. Um, but one of you a little while back was remembering something really important. Yes, Bruce, it was you. Um, about that business about Lancelot saying, if you loved a Lady Paramours, you're going to end up killing the wrong person. Yes, um, by mishap. Exactly. Uh, lots of mishap, lots of unhap uh, that goes on here. Sir Gawain is like a roving night of mishap right um uh, gawain's involved then yeah things are likely to get messy right um and again is it lamorak's fault too yeah lamorak bears some responsibility for this now again his motivation i think he went about it the right way the combat it was an accident right he just like the death it happens right again combat with you know deadly weapons you know it happens but he clearly didn't want to kill him. It was unfortunate that it didn't. It's going to lead to misfortune a little bit later on when he meets this dude's brother. Of course, who is this dude? The the sleeping, the formerly sleeping, now dead knight. You remember who he is? Sir Frawl. He's the one that he rescued one on four in the previous slide, right? He was the innocent dude whom uh, whose part Lamarack took and whose uh, cause he judged uh, without even hearing the facts of the case, uh, without needing to hear the facts of the case, uh, to be in the right. That was Sir Froll, right? And he now just killed him by accident, right? But again, this stuff happens. And if we apply Lamarack, or Lancelot's rule, Lancelot's rule is when stuff like this happens, you need to take a step back and evaluate your life, right? Because this kind of thing, it might be an accident. You didn't mean to kill him. But if this kind of thing happens to you, time to take one or two steps back and uh, think about some of your other choices, right? Because Lancelot says this stuff doesn't happen by chance, right? It might be an accident, but it's happening for a reason, right? And probably because you've screwed up somewhere along the way. If you were living right, this isn't going to happen. That's one of Lancelot's doctrines. Right. And and remember, Lancelot was explicitly talking about sexual virtue there. Right. Again, if you if you, you know, go about doing the courtly love thing, loving ladies, paramours, 
then that's going to lead to this kind of thing, right? So it's not just like obvious cases, like I'm fighting for someone who is in the wrong, right? Or I'm trying to like steal something by force, or I'm, you know, trying to ravish that dude's lady. Like then you're obviously in the wrong and you're, you know, it's not hard. You don't have to take a full step back, right? In order to figure out what's going wrong with your life. Um, But Lancelot says, you know, any of these, if you're not living right, then it has, this is one of the consequences you can expect to have. You can expect to see. You're going to accidentally kill folks that you didn't want to kill. It's a sure, it's, it's, it's a sure symptom. So Lamarack, time to, time to rethink. And then you're going to meet his brother and that's going to be super awkward. Um, now, Lamarack ends up fighting this guy. And in the middle of the fight, Lamarack finds out who he is, right? Um, Sir Belliance is the name of the guy. Um, whose identity Sir Lamarack learns. And in the middle of this fight, Lamarack has this moment. Alas, sighed Sir Lamarack, full well me och to know, to, to know you, for ye are the man that most have done for me. And therewithal, Sir Lamarack canaled a done and besought him of grass. Arise up, sighed Sir Belliance, other Ellis, thereas thou canalest, I shall slay thee. That shall not need. Said Sir, La- said Sir Lamarack, for I will yield me to you, not for no fear of you, nor of your strength, but your goodness maketh me to toe loth to have ado with you. Wherefore, I require you, for God is sack, and for the honor of Knictod, forgive me all that I have offended unto you. Lamarack sees the problem, right? He is finally confronted with this, the guy that he's fighting, who is the brother of the guy he accidentally killed after having previously rescued him. So the brother of the guy that he accidentally killed turns out to be the guy whom he says, you are the man that has done most for me. Now, confession. I don't remember Sir Belliance from before. Did we ever hear the story? of what Sir Belliance did previously for Sir Lamarack? I don't remember it. Maybe we did. If we did, I've forgotten. If we did and you remember, remind me, because I don't remember. I don't think it happened, though, but I could be wrong. I never am uh, uh, very confident when people refer to things like this. I'm like, maybe I just forgot. But I don't think we actually know this story. But it doesn't matter what the backstory is. All we know is that Lamarack feels indebted to this guy. So here he finds himself not only having accidentally murdered the brother of this dude whom he to whom he feels so indebted. Now he's been he's in the middle of fighting him, right? So he kneels down and refuses to fight anymore, right? Take me prisoner. I yield myself to you. Take me prisoner, right? Um I'm not yielding to you because you've beaten me, right? But your goodness mocketh me toe loth to have ado with you. You are too, now that I know who you are, you are good. You are a good man, right? And I owe you so much. I'm not going to, I can't fight you anymore. Um, Alas, sighed Sir Belliance, leave thy knailing, other Ellis I shall slay thee without mercy. 
Then they rode again to battle, and either wounded other, that all the ground was bloody there as they fucked. So he forces Lamorak to keep fighting him. But at the last, and at the last, Sir Beliance withdrew him aback and set him down a little upon the earth, upon upon an hill, for he was faint for bleeding, that he meeked not stunned. It's a pretty good reason to sit down a little bit if you can't stand because you're all you've almost bled out. Than Sir Lamorak threw his shield upon his back and come to him and asked him what cheer. Hey, how you doing, man? Well, said Sir Beliance, I'm fine. How are you? Ah, sir, yet shall I show you father in your malaise. Ah, knicked, said Sir Beliance unto Sir Lamorak, thou art a foal, for and I had thee at such advantage as thou hast me, I should slay thee. But thy gentleness is so good and so large that I must needes forgive thee mine evil will. So Lamorak tries to surrender to him, and he wouldn't take it, right? He forces him to keep fighting. Lamorak fights him to a standstill again and doesn't even make the guy ask him for mercy, right? Just comes up to him and says, how are you? How can I help, right? Um, I shall show you favor in your malaise, right? You look like you're not feeling so well, right? Let me help you. Um, and he says, man, you're a fool. If I had you at my mercy, the way that you have me, I'd have totally killed you, right? Um, but this brings about their reconciliation. Lamorak's uh, refusal to, you know, first his refusal to fight more than his refusal to even take him prisoner. He could, right? He, It's significant. Remember the, the, uh, remember that, fight between Sir Tristram and Sir Blamor de Ganis um, when uh, Sir Tristram was serving as the champion of King Anguishens of Ireland, right? Um, uh, when Sir Blamor refused to yield himself and insisted that Sir Tristram kill him because he refused to say uh, the hated word, namely yield, like I, I yield myself to you. I, 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 he refused to be yielded as recreant. Um, but uh, so it's a big deal to yield to somebody else, to yield yourself beaten to somebody else is a really big deal. Um, and uh, he doesn't make him do it, right? L Lamarack is could easily take him prisoner now to make him ask for mercy, and he doesn't do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Rachel, he is a fool, right? There is wisdom, of course, in his folly. Um, or rather, this is one of those examples where acting acting in a way which is not to your obvious and immediate advantage is, of course, the right thing to do. Um, calling him a fool, he's, of course, not, I think, actually trying to insult him, right? He's just saying, look, uh, you're not doing a good job of looking out for number one there, Lamarack, right? Had I been in your position, I would have, I would not have shown you this mercy. Um, he is showing him goodness, which does not make external sense, right? Uh, and so ends up winning over Sir Belliance, and they swear friendship forever and their BFFs from now on. Um, once again, Lamarack doing things right. Most of the time, mostly, 
right? Not a perfectly clean record, uh, but some interesting examples. Again, notice how I, I, in order to try to understand these things, the, the comparisons I keep making, remember when this other guy did this? Remember when we've seen this same kind of situation again? It's one of the things I know that the nightly combats seem repetitive over the course of this book, but I've always thought that people who have that reaction to Maori, who are reading Sir Thomas Maori and are saying, man, okay, if we've seen one pair of knights tracing and traversing, you know, we've seen them all, haven't we? Um, no, we haven't. Uh, and the very similarities among them are one of the things which I think is makes it so interesting. We just have to understand this is the this is the theater of human interaction that Maori is most interested in, right? Um, and that's the framework of this story. But he is still really interested in how individual people respond in different circumstances, the kinds of choices they make, um, the kind of people that they prove themselves to be, the kind of principles that they profess, and the kind of uh, principles that they actually follow. These are things that Maori is really, that the story is clearly really interested in. Um, and, you know, the nightly battlefield is just the occasion on which these things happen. Anyway, all right, let's um, talk a little bit more briefly. Uh, that is, I'm, I'm going to try to spend a little bit less time per slide here on the story of Sir Lakot Maltail. Um, okay, so. To the court of King Arthur, there came a young man, bigly mad, and he was richly besane, and he desired to be mad a knight of the kings. But his overgarment sat over thwartly, howbeit it was rich cloth of gold. His overgarment sat over thwartly. Uh, so his coat looks funny, right? His coat is hanging off him strangely. Um, uh, he does, he's not neatly and fashionably dressed, though richly. The cloth, the coat, the overgarment in question is a very rich coat. It just fits really badly. What is your name? sighed King Arthur. Sir, my name is Brunor Lenoir, and within short space ye shall know that I am common of good kin. It may well be, sighed Sir Kai the Seneschal, but in mocking ye shall be called La Cote Maltile, that is as much to say, the evil shopping coat. I'm going to call you the evil shaping coat, man, because your coat looks funny. It is a great thing that thou askest, said the king, trying to keep things, you know, on a slightly higher level of discourse here. But for what cows wearest thou that rich coat? It is for some cows, sir, he answered. I had a father, a noble knight, and as he rode and hunting upon a die, it happened him to lie him down to sleep, and there come a knight that had that had been long his enemy. And when he saw he was fast on sleep, he all to hew him, and this some coat had my father on that time. And that marketh this coat to sit so evil upon me, for the stroke is beyond it as I found it, and never shall it be amended for me. Thus to have my father's death in remembrance, I wear this coat till I be revenged. And because ye are called the most noblest king of the world, I come to you to mock 
me a knicht. Okay, um, James, yes, mal tile means poorly tailored, essentially, is what that means, yes. Um, the poorly tailored coat, it just, it fits very, very badly. Um, Sir Kay does what he did before with Bowmates, except much worse, right? I mean, Kay has egg on his face immediately, right? Immediately. Um, because with Bowmanes, right, he gives him a funny name um, because he's convinced that this guy is really a peasant who's trying to masquerade as a knight, right? He's trying to put this guy in his place. He turns out to be wrong, quite drastically wrong. Um, but, you know, at least what he, what he thought was kind of understandable. He had a pretty good case for himself, right? Um, here, what he's making fun of is much more superficial, right? Okay, this guy's coat doesn't fit very well. Yeah, that's a little bit, he looks a little bit funny, Kay, right? But then immediately, you know, the knight being like, oh, you want to know why my coat doesn't fit well? Because this is the coat my father wore when he was murdered. And so I wear his ragged, you know, his slashed up coat to remind me of his death uh, as I have, you know, dedicated my life to avenging my dead father. Um, thank you very much for asking why my coat doesn't fit very well, right? And Karita, I totally agree. Um, in an ideal world, Kay would be like, oh, well, okay. Uh, it's actually kind of a good reason to wear an ill-fitting coat, right? Um, but Kay is totally unrepentant and continues to call him Le Coat Maltile. Um, Kirit is wondering if Kay exists solely to make Arthur look good by comparison. Well, sort of, except, of course, he also kind of makes Arthur look bad for the fact that, you know, Sir Kay is still his seneschal, right? Now he promised, remember he promised their foster father that uh, nobody else would ever be a seneschal again as uh, long as Kay was alive, which has turned out to be an inconveniently long time. Um, Kay has his good points still, but during this section of the text, it's quite easy to forget them. Um, yeah, yeah. And Josiah, I agree, his interjection does seem really random. He does seem like the official court nicknamer for all passers-by. Rather, just sort of shows the license that he seems to feel that he has to say uncourteous things, um, which is uh, not a good look. So this same... Now, remember, no, first of all, actually, just very briefly, um, notice what Arthur comes back to, right? Arthur's not interested in the coat so much. Um, that is, he's not interested in why the coat is ill-shapen exactly, but he says it's a great thing that you ask, right? Um, Sir Lacote Maltile is asking to be made a knight by King Arthur, right? That is kind of a big deal. Um, and not a privilege, because I mean, it's something he can go around bragging about for the rest of his life, right? I was made a uh, knight by King Arthur himself, right? It's kind of a big deal. And so King Arthur is is not going to, like, essentially endorse this guy, knowing nothing about him, right? Um, so he's asking really kind of a lot, right? Um, <clears throat> so here he is, this young kid in the court, and there's a heart, so King Arthur and most of his knights go, 
uh, uh, riding off to try to kill the heart, right? We're going off on a big hunt, uh, leaving uh, Lakot Maltail uh, alone with only a few other knights uh, back at the court. And by a sudden adventure, there was an horrible lion kept in a tower of stone. Why is there a lion in a stone tower there in Arthur's court? I don't know, man. It was a sudden adventure. That's all I can tell you. And he broke loose and came hurling before the queen and her knechtes. And when the queen saw the lion, she cried out and fled and pried her knechtes to rescue her. And there was none but twelve knechtes that abode, and all the other fled. Then said Lakot Maltail, Now I see that all coward knechtes be not dead. And therewithal he drew his sword and dressed him before the lion. And that lion gapped wide and come upon him, romping to have slain him. And he again smote him in the middest of the head, that hit claff in sunder, and so dashed down to, to the earth. And anon it was told the queen how the young man that Sir Kay named Lakot Maltail had slain the lion. And anon with that the king come home, and the queen told him of that adventure. He was well pleased, and sighed, Upon pain of mine head, he shall prove a noble man, and faithful and true of his promise. And forthwithal the king made him a knecht. Now, sir, said this young knecht, I require you and all the knechtes of the court that ye call me none other nam but La Cote Maltile. Insomuch that Sir Kay hath so named me, so will I be called. He embraces the name, right? I insist on being called uh, the ill-fitting coat. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> man, Dor is struck being a little bit uh, cynical here. This, is, this sounds like it was all arranged uh, by, by uh, Lakote Maltile. Maybe, man, I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Jennifer thinks Arthur obviously has a zoo of death in case he wants to hunt particularly dangerous critters. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows what that lion was going to be used for? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a good reason for it, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so, okay, so... Sir Lakot Maltau proves himself, right? Um, and this is all Arthur needs. Arthur sees this guy put himself in danger to save the queen. And not only that, but he accomplishes a pretty remarkable feat of arms uh, in, uh, you know, well, not decapitating, but bisecting the head of a charging lion. That was pretty cool. So he makes him a knight. That's all he needs to see, right? That he shall prove a nobleman and faithful and true of his promise. You can just tell. Right. Um, from what the character that he showed in this event. So that's enough for Arthur to agree uh, to make him a knight. Um, and he insists on being called the ill-made coat. Now, you'll notice. Um, so Michelle asks, is this to rub Kay's face in it as he gains honor while using the mean nickname that Kay gave him? Uh, yes, this is a. on the one hand, this is a fitting sort of rebuke to Kay. Right. Um, but. Um, at the same time, it's also, I think, 
I don't know. It's, it's also, I think, a little bit of uh, uh, of of just sort of heaping coals on Kay's head, because remember, he doesn't like. It turns out he doesn't mind being known by the coat, right? The coat is his dead father's coat, which he wants to draw attention to. It's why he's wearing it, right? He wants his attention always to be on it. So he's like, no, yeah, uh, that's fine with me. Let's go a further. Uh, instead of just wearing it all the time, I yes, I, I embrace having that as my name, right? Um, so that like my very name itself becomes a reminder of this quest that I am on to, uh, uh, to avenge my father's death. So Dolores Stroke, I agree. It is a very keen rebuke of Kay, right? But I agree with you. I doubt that Kay feels it very keenly. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, let's keep going. Then this lady comes to court and she has this big adventure. It's this shield that she has and the knight who, who carries the black shield um, is going to have some big momentous adventure. And Sir Lakote Maltau asks for the adventure and goes off with the lady and she's constantly saying bad things about him and uh, uh, talking him down. If it sounds like you've been here before you have of course this is almost exactly like the story of sir gareth down to the ill-tempered lady uh who is accompanying him but things go a little differently for sir lakote maltile than they went for sir gareth thus she rode long and chid she does a lot of chiding and so within a while there comes sir bleoberus the good knicked and there he justed with sir lakote maltile and there Sir Bleoberus smote him so sore that horse and all fell to the earth. Then Sir Lakote Maltile arose up leakly and dressed his shield and drew his sword, and I, and I would have done battile to the utterance, for he was wood wroth. Not so, said Sir Bleoberus to Ganis, as at this time I will not feet upon foot. Then the damsel Mal Maladisant, that's her name, Maladisant, of course, rebuked him in the foulest manner, and bade him turn again, coward. Ah, damsel, said he, I pray you of, that is, she's telling Sir Lakote Maltel to turn around and go home, right, when it's what she's a turn again. Um, I pray you of mercy, of missy me no more, for my grief is he no, though ye grief me no more. Yet I call me never the worst knicked, though a Maris son hath filed me, and also I count myself never the worst man for a fall of Sir Bleoberus. So thus he rode with her two dies, and by fortune there he encountered with Sir Palamides, the noble knicked, and in the samwise Sir Palamides served him as did Sir Bleoberus to forehand. Then sighed the damsel, What dost thou here in my fellowship? For thou canst not sit no knicked, nor withstand him on buffet, but if it were Sir Dagonet. You remember Sir Dagonet, who is King Arthur's fool, was sent after uh, Sir Lakot Maltau by Kay, who is obviously uh, uh, not, in fact, feeling Sir Lakot Maltau's rebuke very keenly and tries to shame him by sending the king's fool out to joust with him. Now, Sir Lakot Maltau defeats the fool, but of course, uh, the Lady uh, Maladizant makes a lot of hay with that one, right? Um, 
Now, Josiah, you're right. At least she doesn't call him a ladle washer, right? She could she could do much worse than she's doing. Um, okay, so uh, remember how Sir Gareth's story went, right? Sir Gareth's story, you know, he was being you know constantly called ladle washer and worse, right, by uh, by his lady, and but like every single time he fought, he won. Right, he fought Sir Lancelot to a draw. Right, he beat Kay himself, fought Sir Lancelot to a draw, and then either beat and or killed every other knight that he faced, um, all the way pretty much through the entire rest of the story, and certainly through the whole time that the damsel was bad mouthing him. Right, poor Lakot Maltai gets knocked off his horse immediately by the first two other knights after Sir Dagonet that he meets. Right, um, and this is, uh, it's interesting. On the one hand, one thing that's interesting about this is it's kind of interesting to have the story of a knight, you know, as I said in my subtitle here, it's the life of an above average knight. Sir Lacote Maltile is really a good knight, but he's not the best knight, right? He's not really top 10. Um, so you can be a good knight, but not be top 10. You can even be a good enough knight to have a whole little story all to yourself, right? But that doesn't mean you can beat Sir Bleoberus or Sir Palamides. I mean, those guys, those are top 10. Sir Palamides is top five. Sir Bleoberus is, is, is top 10 at least, right? So, you know, as he says, he's right. Um, uh, you know, not... Uh, um, he's right. There's no shame in losing to those two guys, right? Just because I'm not one of the 10 best knights in the world doesn't mean I'm, you know, chopped liver over here. Um, but um, still, it's kind of embarrassing, right? Um, and uh, begin. it's hard to sort of not wonder along with the damsel to some extent. Okay, like, why are you on this <laughs> <laughs> you are hardly the most qualified knight in the land, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Carita says, Sir Tristram, if, if Sir Tristram is the budget Lancelot, uh, Sir Lakote Maltile is the budget Gareth. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he does not have the distinction of Sir Gareth, right? Um, now, we're going to learn more about this in a little bit. But again, it's <clears throat> just interesting to see him losing like that. He, you know, he, he's starting to sound like Gareth, the Knight of Destiny, but he's not the Knight of Destiny. He's just, you know, pretty good. Um, then Mordred explains. Mordred, right? First time we've met with Mordred. No, nah, second time. He was at a tournament before. Um, but this first time we've had conversation with Sir Mordred, right, as he's wandering about. So Sir Mordred is now old enough uh, to be a wandering errant knight like everybody else. And the damsel is still questioning the valor of Sir Lakote Maltau. Now, keep in mind, this is after Sir Lakote Maltau has made his greatest accomplishment yet. Like that when he chases the guy into the castle and kills him, and then he's set upon by a hundred. So he's fighting one on a hundred, right? And he fights his way clear, killing 12 of them on the way out. Uh, and the damsel's like, oh yeah, you, that, that, you know, that totally didn't happen. Right. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure he cheated. Um, Mordred says, be my, 
Bay me, be me my head, sighed Sir Mordred to the damsel. Ye are greatly to blame so to rebuke him, for I warn you plainly, he is a good knight, and I doubt not, but he shall prove a noble man. But as yet he may not sit sure on horseback, for he that for he that must be a good horseman, it must come of usage and exercise. If you want to be a good jouster, you need to practice, it turns out. Wow, notice how no one's ever said this before. This is the first of all of Arthur's knights to admit that you, you're not just born with your natural skill. Right? Like You actually have to practice to get better at this over time. Well, anyway, jousting. Anyhow, but when he cometh to the strokes of his sword, he is than noble and meekty. And that saw Sir Bleobris and Sir Palamides, for we do well they were wily men of war. For they would know anon when they saw a young knight by his riding, how they were sure to give him a fall from his horse, other than a great, other a great buffet. But for the most party, they will not leaked on foot with young knictes, for they are meekly and strongly armed. For in likewise Sir Launcelot du Lac, when he was first mad knight, he was often put to the worse on horseback. But ever upon foot he recovered his renown, and slew and defouled many knictes of the Rhone table. And therefore the rebukes that Sir Launcelot did unto many knictes causeth them that be men of prowess to be war. For often time I have seen the old praved knictes rebuked and slain by them that were but young beginners. So exactly, Tarlonio, you don't need to practice sword play, just writhing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so, okay, um, fascinating little glimpse into the, like, actual workings of the system, right? Sir Bleobaris and Sir Palamides both could tell, right? One look at Sir, I mean, they're, they're, they're pros, right? One look at Sir Lakot Maltau, and they could tell, oh, here's a young knight, right? Remember, nobody recognizes anybody, so... He could be anybody, but they can tell by his riding. They're looking at him on his horse, and they're like, oh, man, this guy's a plum, right? I'd knock this guy off anytime I want, right? But they're not going to alight on foot and fight with him because, you know, that's risky. That's risky. Um, Notice, Carita, yeah, Lancelot didn't spring out of the womb a perfect jouster. That note that Mordred gives, that... Sir Lancelot himself was often put to the worse on a horseback earlier on, early in his career, is kind of interesting, right? A little bit shocking. Um, but um, yeah, so apparently Sir Palamides and Sir Bleobaris are padding their stats, <laughs> essentially, right? Uh, you know, they can knock uh, Sir Lacote Martel off his horse. Yeah, no problem, right? They can put that on their resume, but they're not going to fight him on foot because, you know, it's not worth it, right? Um, it's, um, here's the best comparison I can think of. So what Sir Bleobaris and what Sir Palamides did with Sir Lacote Martel there is kind of like when, um, uh, so, I'm not a big fan of American college football, but 
there's a phenomenon just like this in American college football. For those of you who do know anything about college football, um, what team is like the University of Michigan or Ohio State or, you know, uh, 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 you know, like Texas A&M, who are they likely to uh, schedule to play against, like on homecoming week when all the alums are in town and stuff? Sometimes it's the big rival, but not often. You know who they play against? They play against like Appalachian State University, right? They bring in some cupcake team, which is like cannot possibly compete with them, right? Whom they're going to thump like 75 to 3, right? Um, and uh, why do they do this? Because then like the alums are happy because the alums are going to come in to the campus and they're going to see the game. What do they want to see? Well, they don't want to see the home team lose, right? So you bring in a team that you know you can beat. And this is part of how you proceed in the college football standings, right? You got to kind of balance things. You want to you want to you want to have a competitive schedule but not too competitive, right? You want to pad your your one loss record with plenty of easy wins along the way. It's part of how the game is work. So you pad your record by fighting against uh you know, uh, lower ranking uh, or completely unranked, totally off the bottom of the ranking uh, teams, right? Again, it's how you play the system. Sir Bleoberis and Sir Palamides doing the same thing, right? Sir Lakote Maltel, notice what will happen. Later on, Sir Lakote Maltel might get better, right? He might, who knows, maybe he'll be a top 10 knight someday. He just got knighted. He's a young kid still. Right, he just got knighted. Maybe he's going to be a top 10 knight someday. And then Sir Bleobaris and Sir Palamides will always be able to say, yeah, I totally knocked Sir Lakota Motel off his horse. Absolutely, I did that. Do you think those dudes who knocked Lancelot off his horse don't remember it fairly frequently and in public? Right? Come on. You've got that on your resume for life. I knocked Sir Lancelot Dulac off his horse. Right? Come on. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Jennifer's asking, is it not dishonorable to just ride off without continuing the fight on foot? Well, see, it's frustrating, right, for the knight who got knocked off the horse, but it's you're not required to continue to fight on foot, um, especially if there's not a really good reason to fight, right? I mean, if you're just kind of fighting for the heck of it as a kind of sport, you know, as just part of the overall competition – then no, it's fine. You know, you don't need to fight to the death for something like that. You just be like, no, man, I'm good. I'm going to carry on. But it, it is very frustrating for the knight who got knocked off his horse because he wants a chance to win his own back, right, with the sword play. You remember, this is what Lamarack was so upset about when Sir Tristram knocked him off his horse and then wouldn't fight him on foot, right? Because he was like, he, like refusing to give him satisfaction. Um, but... Uh, but anyway, yeah, certainly, Karita, absolutely, the new kid, uh, the new kid can't complain. Um, yeah, now of course, <laughs> Zach Coben is saying, uh, unless you're my alma mater and you play easy teams and still lose homecoming games, 
Yeah, well, of course, that's the risk, right, of bringing in a cupcake team, um, because then if you lose, it's like doubly embarrassing. But again, same situation for Sir Bleoberis and Sir Palamides, right? If they were to go up against this rookie kid uh, that they can they can tell he's a greenhorn just from looking at him, right? If they lose, oh, man. Right. That's like double shame. Right. They're going to they're going to go down two pegs in the in the overall uh, leaderboard if uh, if they lose to him. But, you know, still still fairly safe bet. Right. All right. Anyway, Sir Mordred's insight is interesting. But wait, hang on a second. Quick. Uh, yes. Marilyn. Um, is it significant that when Lancelot arrives, Mordred leaves? I you know, the narrator says nothing about it. We're just told that when Sir Lancelot arrives, Mordred excuses himself, right? Um, I, yes, I think that that's significant, though the narrator is not making anything of it yet. Um, is Sir Mordred running away? Not running away in the sense of, like, Lancelot's after him or chasing him. But, yes, I do think it's significant that Mordred does not travel in company with Sir Lancelot. Um, okay. Lancelot comes home. After this, right? He's already off. Sir Lacotte-Maltel is already off on his quest. So God me sab, said Sir Launcelot unto many of his fellows. It was sham to all the good noble knechtes to suffer such a young knecht to talk so high adventure on him for his destruction. For I wall that ye wit, said Sir Launcelot, that this damsel maladisant hath borne that shield many a die for to seech the most provid knechtes. And that was she that Sir Bruce Sounds Pite took the shield from, and after Sir Tristramus de Leoness rescued that shield from him and gaff it to the damsel again, a little afore that time that Sir Tristramus fought uh, with my nephew, Sir Blamar de Ganis, for a quarrel that was betwixt the King of Ireland and him. So if you wanted to go back and look it up in the book, that's where you can find it. Then many Knechtes were sorry that Sir Lacote Maltile was gone forth to the adventure. Truly, sighed Sir Launcelot. I cast me to ride after him. So here's Lancelot coming in and saying, dude, guys, you did not live up to the standard here, right? It was shameful of you guys to let that guy take that quest on himself, right? He is probably going to get killed, right? This, this quest that he has taken on himself is way above his pay grade, right? It was shameful of you even to let it happen. And notice they're all like, he, he rebukes them all publicly, and what do they say? You're right. We're sorry. We shouldn't have done that. Uh, we feel bad now that we let Sir Lacote Maltile go forth on the adventure. And Lancelot's like, guys, come on now. Don't just sit around being sorry. I'm going to go after him. I'm going to see if I can help this kid, right? Because he is in way over his head. Um, Lancelot doesn't just think the right thing to do. He goes and does it and does it immediately, right? And doesn't just sit around feeling bad that he hadn't done the right thing before. Sir Lancelot, once again, our exemplar. However, having met him and rode along with him a little while, he is interrupted by some correspondence. I love this passage. So this meantime, Sir Tristramas sent by a damsel a letter unto Sir Launcelot, excusing him of the wedding of Isode Le Blanche Minus, and said in the letter, as he was true knight, he had never ado fleshly with Isode Le Blanche Minus. And passing courteously and gently, 
Sir Tristramas wrote unto Sir Launcelot, ever beseeching him to be his good friend and unto La Belle Isoude of Cornwall. And then notice he's got to specify the country of the Isoude in question, because like now he's confused the whole Isoude question with his wife. And that Sir Launcelot would excuse him if that ever he saw her. And within short time, by the grace of God, Sir Tristram is said that he will speak with La Belle Isoude and with him wreaked hastily, with Lancelot wreaked hastily. Then Sir Launcelot departed from the damsel and from Sir Lacote Maltile for to oversee that letter and to to read another letter under Sir Tristram. Okay. So yeah, his pen pal catches up with him. Um <laughs> Karina says, this is so weird and embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> it is really weird so tristram is excusing himself so sir, remember sir lancelot condemned him very firmly right for his untruthfulness to his lady and tristram says uh please forgive me for getting married but it's okay because i didn't sleep with my wife that makes it okay. And I'm going to make up to La Belle Zode real soon. I'm going to go back and talk to her. And I hope to talk to you afterwards. And if you see La Belle Zode before I do, can you put in a good word for me? <laughs> Says Tristram. Would you mind? Um, and then Sir Lancelot leaves. Um, by the way, for to oversee that letter oversee is a really interesting word here um my theory about that sentence there for to oversee that letter and to read another letter under sir tristram i don't think sir lancelot is literate um here's how i'm imagine this is what i think this is the story i think behind this the damsel shows up with a letter from sir tristram and she says to him lancelot i have a letter for you from sir tristram and he says oh great um excuse me sir lacote maltile i have to go get somebody who can read me this letter because i can't read it um and He's also got to get another, uh, get a letter written for Tristram, which he himself quite possibly cannot write, right? So this is why he can't, like, you might ask, if he just needs to read the letter, why doesn't he just stay with, I mean, can't he just be like, hang on, Sir Lakot Malta, just give me five minutes, I got to read this letter, right? Uh, and then, you know, I need to take out my writing desk and write a reply later on, I'll send a reply from the next town, right? Um, as we've talked about, Literacy is a is a much more uh, specialized uh, skill, right? With a much more limited um, uh, cultural relevance and uh, 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 broad applicability. I think he's leaving him because he's got to go find a clerk who can both help him to oversee that letter. He hasn't read it. Um, now the narrator is telling us what's contained in it, right? Because the narr so the narrator is kind of skipping the middleman here. 
right? Um, so we don't have to, we don't hear the whole story about how Sir Lancelot goes off and finds a clerk who reads him the letter, and then Sir Trist, and then Lancelot helps to write. But he's 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 got this letter, which he needs help reading and responding to. I believe is what that is supposed to mean. It's the that word oversee is the one that I think is. Uh, my, like to, to, he needs to actually look over the letter, which he can't do right there and then because he can't read it. Um, so, uh, um, <laughs> Kareen is wondering if people tipped their scribes really handsomely to keep their mouths shut about the dirty details of their personal lives. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, um, this is why you generally use go-betweens and you don't send notes as a rule, uh, because no one involved can actually read and you don't want to inv involve, you know, the local priest because like, awkward. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you're right, Katriana, who, whatever is the quirk he finds, who's able to read him the letter <laughs> and write his own does have some bragging rights. You got to think at the local pub later on. I think that's totally true. Um, notice again here that we don't get like we're not resuming the story of Tristram and we don't even hear what Lancelot's reply is right but we're being reminded that the the uh that you know so Tristram is still in the doghouse right but he's appealing to Lancelot and Lancelot is at least going to talk to him right he's not just uh ignoring him and moving on so uh more on this later but we have this story continuing in the background here okay uh now you remember that um the lady sir lacote maltau's lady was named uh the damsel maladies out which of course as uh little atomic was uh translating right away it um it means the 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 ill saying lady. It means literally evil speaking, right? Mala dizount, um, evil, 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 evil talking, evil saying. Um. So yeah, she's kind of living up to the part here, right? Um. So the damsel Mala dizount has found out who Sir Lancelot is. Right, has found out his identity, which, as we know, he tends to like to keep on the down low when he's adventuring. Um, he says, "Who told you?" And she's like, this, "That other damsel told me." Blam, have she there foresight? He, but her lord, Sir Nerovius, had told her. But damsel, sighed Sir Launcelot, upon this covenant I will ride with you, so that ye will not rebuke this knight, Sir Lacote Maltile, no more. For he is a good knight, and I doubt not, but he shall prove a noble man. And for his sake and pity that he should not be destroyed, I followed him to succor him in this great need. Ah, Jesu, thank you, sighed the damsel. For now I will say unto you and to him both, he's right there, of course, I rebuked him never for none hot that I hotted him, but for great love that I had to him, for ever I supposed that he had been too young and too tender of age to tack upon him this adventure. And therefore, be my will, be my will, I would have driven him away for jealousy that I had of his life, for it might be no young knicht's deed that shall achieve this adventure to the end. Perdi, 
said Sir Launcelot, it is well side of you, and where ye are called the damosel Maladisount, I will call you the damosel Beopansount. Okay. Um, so, no, she doesn't... Um, she doesn't say everything beautifully. She she's now she's he, he says you have been called the damsel evil speaking. I will call you beautiful thinking, right? Uh, you're the damsel of beautiful thoughts. Okay, so yes, Michelle, this is another echo of Gareth's damsel's actions. But notice, notice it's not an exact echo, right? Um, Gareth's response to Lynette's harshness, right? Um, she does say that she was doing it to try to, uh, hoping that he would turn back because she didn't want him killed. Um, he says, you know, no, but like, I'm glad that you did because it inspired me to better deeds, right? Um, this damsel, the damsel Maladisant is, is stronger she loves him herself. Lynette did not, right? She was just the messenger. Um, she was like testing him, right? Maladisant speaks of her jealousy for his life, right? She was trying to, um, she was trying to save, um, she was trying to save Sir Lacote Martel's life. Just like Lancelot, she had the same thought. Like he is too, way too young, um, uh, way too inexperienced for this adventure, right? How can I stop him? Remember, jealousy means, um, jealousy means she was like protective of his life, right? Um, that she uh, uh, she was jealous of it. She it was like in her custody, and she was trying to protect it. Um, so she might be the damsel Maladisant, but she's now the, dam the damsel Biopansant. Notice the names describing who she is and what she does. That might be important too. Check this out. We're almost done here. Um, this is my favorite part. We come to this bridge, this fortress guarding a bridge. And he asks Sir Lancelot to, to let him go in first. Lancelot, of course, is like, hang on, I'll take care of this. And Sir Lacote Maltile says, no, no, let me go in first. So he entered anon, and there are met with him twelve brethren, the ton heaked Sir Pline de Force, and that other heaked Sir Pline de Amoris. And anon they justed with Sir Lacote Maltile, and Sir Lacote Maltile smote down Sir Pline de Force, and after he smote down Sir Pline de Amoris. And thon they dressed their shields and swerdes, and bade Sir Lacote Maltile a licht, and so he did. And there was a dashing and a foining with swerdes, and so they began to assail other full hard, and they gaff Sir Lacote Maltile many great woundes upon head and breast and upon shoulders. And as he meeked ever among, he gaff sad strokes again, and than the twelve brethren trusted and traversed for to be of both hondes of Sir Lacote Maltile, but hey, be fine force, and knickly prowess got him afore him. So you notice what's happening there? In the fight, he's fighting one on two here, right? And the two brothers try to flank him, 
right? They try to get on either side of him. Um, uh, so they, they tried to be on both Hondas of Sir Lakot Maltail, right? But by force and by knightly prowess, he he gate him afore him, right? He he kept them both in front of him. And one he felt him so wounded that he doubled his strokes and gaff them so many wounds that he felled him to the earth and would have slain them had they not yielded them. Okay, so he feels himself to be injured. Right and notes he he's he better finish this quickly or else he's not gonna right uh, so he uh, doubles his strokes and he takes them both out and reap so Sir Lacote Maltile took the best horse that there was of them three and so he rode forth his way to the other fortress and bridge and there he met with the third brother his name was Sir Plenorius a full noble knight. And there they justed together, and either smote other down, horse and man, to the earth. And thon they avoided their horses, and dressed their shields and swerdes, and thon they gaff many sad strokes. And on while the unknight was a four on the bridge, and another while the other, and thus they fucked two oars and more, and never rested, and ever Sir Launcelot and the damsel beheld them. Okay. On the one hand, this is a, a great adventure, right? And a noble deed on the part of Sir Lacote Maltile. Um, it is kind of like fighting through levels of a dungeon, Michelle. It's also, of course, reminiscent of Sir Gareth again, right? Fighting his way through the chromatic brothers, right? Uh, as each brother more, uh, uh, more strong and more threatening than the one before. Now... And I agree, two hours is a super long time to fight, especially after you've already finished a fight with two guys at once where you barely beat them and were pretty significantly wounded during the course of it, right? Especially long time in that circumstance. All of this stuff, super relevant. But you notice the other element that we get here? There's something fishy about this fight. Or there's another. Anybody notice anything odd about these knights? What are those first two knights named again? Did you notice this? Now, this is, of course, where um, you will notice already in the damsel's name, this has been useful. Uh, any of you who uh, uh, know any French will be rewarded at various points in Maori. Um, uh, I took French in high school uh, for no good reason whatsoever, actually, for a disreputable reason. Um, but uh, it turned out to be super useful when I went on to study Middle English. was super glad that I took French in high school. Um, the names of his the first two knights that he fights are Sir Pline de Force and Sir Pline de Amoris, which literally translate Tarlonio, yes, strength and love. And the Pline de... Any French scholars? Full of. Full of force. Pline de. One knight is called Full of Force and the other full of love. Okay. Um, 
they're both knights and he's fighting both of them at once and remember their tactics right as they try to flank him on either side so that he's divided between the two of them but he manages to keep them both in front of him and ends up overcoming the both of them right okay and the third brother the third brother is less obvious than plain de amoris and plain de force. What's his name? Plenorius? What's he full of? <laughs> Dangerous question. What's the third knight full of? A little French, a little Latin. No, he's not full of Oreos. <laughs> that is not the right answer. <laughs> I like that answer. <laughs> that is not the right answer. <clears throat> Plain de Honorius. He's full of honor. Yeah, exactly, Terlonio. He's full of honor. So what you notice in this combat, the three brothers that he fights are force, love, and honor, which is kind of like the knightly life, right? These are like three points of the, you know, knightly triad here, right? Um, first, he fights force and uh, force and love. Right now, force and love try to divide him. Right. So like he has to go one way or the other. Right. To force or to love. Uh, and but he managed to get to keep them. So he managed to fight and overcome the both of them. Right. So he. He overcomes both force and love. But he fights to a standstill with. Full of honor. Right. With honor. What do we do with this? As soon as you see the name, um, remember Tolkien's comment about being old and wary enough to suspect the presence of allegory. When you've read enough medieval literature, you 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 um, become wary enough to suspect the presence of allegory in moments like this, right? All you got to do is you got to see. We've already been primed by the dame, by you know the damsel maladisant, right? Uh, the damsel who we who turns out to be named evil speaking when she's been saying all these mean things all the time, right? So we've already been primed for like the name to represent the thing. Um, and now we meet these guys with obviously, um, with obviously allegorical names. Um, so what's going on here? Force and love. Those are two elements of the knightly world, right? But neither one of them is the whole story. You can't just, you don't want to be overcome by either one of those guys, right? If you do, you're a failure. Um, if you, because imagine what would happen if he lost, right? He'd, what? He, Sir Lakot Malatile, would have to be taken prisoner, but he would have to submit himself to one of those two. That would be bad, right? 
if you submit yourself to force, right? If you you allow force to overcome you, um, well, then you become like Sir Bruce Sans Pity, or you become like Sir 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 Tarquin, right? Um, if you allow love to take over you, then you become like I don't know what, like Sir Gawain, maybe, right? Um, not like Sir Paris, the knight who like the damsel raping knight uh, that Sir Lancelot fought because uh, he, he doesn't have a love problem exactly. He's got other issues. Um, but you come like Sir Tristram? Yeah, maybe, Veronica. Uh, that seems a little bit more fair. Um, to be uh, overcome by either one of the, to be dominated by either by force or by love, those are elements of the knightly life, but that's not the whole story. Honor is the third one and honor is the one who overcomes him right um but notice what <clears throat> notice what happens when when that happens so they're fighting for two hours this meanwhile sir lakote maltile sank reeked down upon the earth what for wounded and for bled he make not stand then the tother knicked had pity of him this is sir plenorius and sighed fire knicked dismay you not for had ye been fresh then when ye met with me as I was, I wot well that I could not have endured you. And therefore, for your noble deeds of armies, I shall show to you kindness and gentleness all that I might. And forthwithal, this noble knight, Sir Plenorius, took him up in his armies and led him into his tower. And then he commanded him the wine and mad to search him and to stop his bleeding wounds. He acts honorably towards him. Notice that like, notice that like um, uh, uh, Sir Lamarack, Sir Plenorius does not make uh, Sir Lakote Mautile submit to him, right? Does not make him ask, beg him for mercy. As Sir Lakote Mautile just collapses upon the ground, Sir Plenorius just calls it and instead comes to his assistance just like Lamarack did with Sir Belliance. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, nice. Josiah says a knight may live beyond both strength and romance, but he must always measure himself against his honor. Uh, yes, it is. It is. It is against. Honor. He's not even really beaten again. He does. He's not taken prisoner even by honor. Right. Um, but he is treated honorably by honor here. He finds. So, I mean, clearly, if it's a triad, there's a there's there's a ranking here. Notice again, it's kind of like the chromatic brothers, but instead of just having one color after another with no obvious reason why like black should be stronger than or why green should be stronger than red and why red was stronger than black. That's I mean, they just they're just colored. Right. And we know that each one is stronger than the one before, like the, you know, the three billy goats gruff um, here. There's a moral to it. There's a meaning. Right. Force and love are strong factors in the knightly life. But if you're going to be a good and noble knight, you need to overcome those, right? You can't just live by those and you certainly can't be taken prisoner by them. But honor, right? Honor is above them. Honor is the greatest of the, of these three brothers, right? Sir Plenonorius, clearly a greater knight than the other two, not to mention more honorable, Right and kindly and showing both honor and uh, and generosity. Um, and um, yeah, so he 
even though he loses in the end, again, notice how kind of refreshingly not cliched the story of Lakota Montal is, right? He doesn't just beat everybody he fights from the beginning, right? He kind of loses more fights than he wins, actually. Um, uh, but in the end, he is victorious, right? He is victorious even in defeat here um, as he meets his match by Sir Plenorius and yet is still not taken prisoner by him. Um, and I think this is kind of lovely and it works out really well. And now is this just an allegory? No, no, this like really happened. These are guys that uh, uh, that Sir Lacote Montal um, comes up against, right? Um, but we also get to overlay this with a symbolic story, right? With a little allegory of the nightly existence. Um, yeah. Uh, Jennifer, you're right. The damsel was right. This was too hard for him. Yeah. Um, and yet it, it didn't end up defeating him completely. And Lancelot is there to, uh, you know, to come in. And he Lancelot comes in and defeats Sir Blenorius and settles everything. Right. Um, so Lancelot had his back and it's it's all it's all good. Right. It's all OK. Um, all right. I'm actually I'm, I'm over time. So I'm going to stop here. I have one more slide, but I'm going to stop even though I only have one more slide because it's a long one. It's the end of the story of Sir Lakot Malatile. But actually that will serve reasonably well as a springboard into the next section. So we'll do that. So um, so I'm going to stop there. Um, in the next section, so for the next class, which remember is two weeks from now. So on the 28th of November, we will come back together. Um, in that time, we will discuss the next section that I have mapped out. I'll also be mapping out the next bits. We'll, we'll keep going from here um, as I will, you know, keep kind of casting out uh, our, you know, our, our uh, um, you know, our path in front of us here as we go. So Anyhow, um, we'll start with the very end of the story of Sir Lakote Maltile because, again, I want to come back to that question of what is Lancelot's role? What is his status in the court? The end of the story of Sir Lakote Maltile I find very interesting in that regard, especially. Um, and then it will be back to the story of Sir Tristram. Uh, so off we go. So thanks, everybody, for joining me. I, will, I hope you guys uh, uh, have a good Thanksgiving, and I will be back in two weeks. So see you guys later. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.